What's up, Freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with John Constable, director at the Renewable Energy Foundation, to talk common sense about energy, the different sources, how dense they are, what we should be using, how idiotic current energy policy in the West is, and how China is beating us. We don't change energy policy soon. We could be cascading into a very bad situation. I mean, it seems that the situation is bad already. However, if we don't make some drastic changes to energy policy, we could find ourselves in a doom loop that really sets society back decades, if not centuries. No exaggeration. This trip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to bring you many things. Most importantly, their trading desk, which is becoming more popular, becoming more available in more states, and it is the most secure way to buy Bitcoin. You buy Bitcoin, you go to unchained.com slash trading. You buy Bitcoin. And it goes straight to two or three multi-sig cold storage. You hold two keys. Unchain holds one. You always have control of your UTXOs. No more needing to buy on exchange. Hold on that exchange. Withdrawal. You go to unchain.com slash trading. You buy. It goes straight to two or three multi-sig cold storage. If you want to learn more about this product, go to unchain.com slash trading. Have a talk with their trading team. Check out their vault product. Check out their IRA, their lending desk. They've got it all for you. Unchained.com. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains is here to help you become a more profitable miner. They're here to help you smarten up your operation. Hash price is this low, hovering around seven cents, as low as six cents in the last couple of weeks. You need to be as efficient as possible as an operator, and you need to be a smart operator. Don't be an idiot. Download Brains OS Plus firmware. If you have ASICs that are compatible with it, it's going to help you stack more SATs. It's going to elongate the life cycle of your ASIC. It's going to give you more stats. It's a beautiful thing. Go to brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Download the auto-tuning firmware. If you point it at Brains Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. Go check out Brains Insights for all the data that you need, their blog, their books. They got it all. This rope is also brought to you by our good friends at HODL, 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 HODL. is here to bring you a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform with no KYC, no AML. Peer-to-peer, -peer, mentioned that already, leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties and has lower rates than many of the other lenders on the market right now. You go to lend.hodlhodl.com, you find somebody who's willing to lend you stable coins, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral in a two or three multi-sig escrow account, you hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds one key, and HODL HODL holds the third key. Since you have one key, you have visibility into the escrow account throughout the duration of the loan so that you know that your SATs are not being rehypothecated. And if you're paying your loan back plus the interest, you're going to get your SATs back at the end of the day. And if you have stablecoins laying around, you want to get yield on them, enter the other side of that marketplace, put them up to be lent out to Bitcoiners using their Bitcoin as collateral and get a yield on it. Lower rates. Peer-to-peer, -peer, no KYC, no AML, lend.hodlhodl.com. 
Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here to help you take more control over your health care. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC to check out our landing page. When you join CrowdHealth, you're becoming a member of a community that is approaching healthcare in a different way. It's not health insurance. Health insurance is opaque. It's filled with malincentives and different layers of bureaucratic BS that increase cost and lower the quality of the services that you provide. When you become a community member at CrowdHealth, you pay a monthly fee that goes to a bank account that's dedicated to you that you can see that you have control of, can always take the money with you if you decide to leave CrowdHealth. Um, the way it works is if you have a medical uh, a healthcare incident and you need to go see a doctor, get a test, get a surgery, whatever it is, you tell CrowdHealth, say, hey, I'm going to the doctor. They say, all right, go to the doctor, bring the bill back to us. Uh, they'll take the bill, negotiate the prices lower with the doctors. The doctors like this because in this model, they get cash directly and right away. And they'll take the premium on that, that time dilation of capital. Uh, and then with your bill, you pay the first $500 and then the rest of that goes out to the crowd health community. 100% of bills have been paid to date. They can't guarantee that moving forward, but that is just the way it has worked to date. Uh, they have a Bitcoin community where you pay a monthly fee. And part of that goes to your cash balanced and your dedicated bank account. And part of that goes to Bitcoin uh, and a dedicated selection of Bitcoin wallets that you control. It's a beautiful thing. Speculative attack, your future healthcare cost. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Use the code TFTC at checkout when you sign up and you're going to get $100, excuse me, $99 a month for the first six months. First thousand members of the Bitcoin community. Use the code TFTC. Join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Enjoy this episode with John Constable. Very enlightening. We need to get this message out to as many people as possible. Tiki. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Now, I read your, uh, I reread your piece in Colette this morning. I think uh, it's very important work what you're doing, especially right now. In a sense, it's a blinding flash of the obvious, but sometimes important things are like that. Uh, they're things that I suppose we all knew, actually, um, but weren't quite facing up to. And uh, the character of wealth, I think, is is one of them. Uh, it's, uh, well, we should talk about this, but are we already working on your on your broadcast? Are we, not, are we pre, pre the broadcast? Do you want to start? Well, I hit record since I didn't have a producer, and I figured we could just... We could just yeah as you like um yes yeah, so the quillette piece is uh, is the latest version of these thoughts and i'm hoping to to build on on that as as i go along i it's it's frustrating that there are so few of us willing to take this physicalist perspective on wealth seriously since so much is at stake and if we get this wrong 
according to my view, uh, we may be jeopardizing the accumulated wealth and sophistication of several millennia. And once you start slipping uh, in, in this way, it, it could be very dangerous for us indeed. And we tend to think of wealth and sophistication, and particularly intellectual sophistication, as permanent acquisitions. They're very far from it. Uh, intellectual sophistication is like any other physical state. It's vulnerable to thermodynamic decay. And conceptual uh, elegance and sophistication can easily be lost. Technology is not a permanent acquisition. You know, you've got to keep on maintaining it through the social reproduction of knowledge. And I'm concerned that we may be moving into a time when our energy supply is not adequate to maintain not only the gross physical sophistication of our road networks and our buildings, but also our intellectual sophistication, at which point we really do become very vulnerable to uh, you know, un unbounded slippage. You just uh, you you climb slowly in civilizational terms, but you you fall fast, and we know that from the historical record. So I'm pretty concerned about it. So I'm I'm very committed to making sure that these ideas actually get across, uh, but it is frustratingly slow, um, largely I think because of conventional economics. I, I I regard the field of economics as a bit of a curse, actually, <laughs> uh, particularly macroeconomics. Uh, microeconomics is humble but decent stuff. You know, it helps you run a business and that sort of stuff. It's basically accountancy. I have a lot of time for accountants, actually. Um, they're not exciting people, but they're much closer to the real world than macroeconomists, uh, who I think give false comfort to politicians and also to uh, decision makers in large corporates who, who genuinely don't really know what they're doing. They have no, so poor a grasp of the physical actuality of the real economy. They constantly blunder. And, uh, and, make decisions which affect all of our lives, uh, whether we wish them to or not. That's been a reoccurring theme here on this show is uh, we're not too fond of academic economists as well. And I, I think mm -hmm. what you just described there is that these individuals are completely detached from the source of information and they try to granularly control complex systems and centrally yeah. plan them, which is, is not possible. No, even, even the liberal economists, I think, are, are unrealistic about uh, what matters uh, to to people. Uh, they don't see what people are doing. You know, one of Richard Scarry's books, I have small children, um, one of Richard Scarry's books that I read recently with them is entitled What People Do All Day. Well, it's a pretty good question, actually. Uh, and it's not quite clear what they are up to, but I don't think it's so difficult to work it out. I mean, what people are actually doing is gathering resources to secure reproduction. They're protecting their families. They're investing in their future reproduction. And, and it's it's that which I think misleads uh, so many economists. They think of people as being hedonic robots, just seeking uh, you know, sensory satisfactions of various kinds. But those are all proxies and intermediaries. What they're actually doing is safeguarding the futures of their families. And this is why there's this constant friction between economic expectations and what people actually do. So economists uh, look at human behavior and think of it as rather irrational, but much of what appears to be irrational makes a great deal of sense when you regard them as organisms like any other, uh, seeking satisfactions as proxies for the development of their own family trajectories. And reacting to new information that is local to them. Yes, which they know very well, and the ac academic economists um, know not at all, um, in fact, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And bringing this back to the concept of energy and the fact that you believe that humanity is energy blind right now. I really like that part of your piece in Quillette that essentially mm -hmm. likened humans relation 
to their understanding of energy is similar to a fish's understanding of water, where, where it just surrounds us, but we don't really understand how it works and the importance of it. And there's a causal loop of human's ability over time to harness energy, most importantly, more denser forms of energy to mm. be more productive throughout the economy. And it seems that for some reason or another, over the last two to three decades, uh, the powers that be have decided to completely ignore uh, thermodynamics and the reality yep. of physics and the fact that we've only gotten to this point because we've found denser and more abundant forms of energy. Absolutely. I mean, you say the powers that be, but the powers that be in the West, I mean, the powers that be in Asia uh, seem to understand these matters pretty well. And uh, they're running their economies as if uh, energy density actually did matter. And they're, they're benefiting hugely from it. And uh, I was in the States recently giving talks to uh, people in the Denver oil and gas world. And uh, I was surprised how few of those people, I met some of them understood it very well, but many didn't, that American energy consumption is not in a good state. You know, you've been flatlining since the early 2000s. It's worse in Europe, by the way. I mean, our energy consumption is falling quite sharply. Those sorts of indicators ought to be front page news. They should be you know, really very controversial. There should be you know, seminars every week in Washington on why is it that American energy consumption is stalling in this way? It's, is that this is just not a good sign? But people are indifferent to it. And I think this energy blindness is a, uh, an interesting way of looking at it. I, I think that's literally true, likely to be true. I'm, we're developing this idea. Um, it's not fully fleshed out yet. But it seems very likely that awareness of energy has not been a strong selective advantage in human history. You can get by without it, but we can't get by without it. Um, we've developed such sophisticated societies. We're so far from thermodynamic equilibrium that we're vulnerable to our misunderstanding. Um, so it's now a, a selective pressure. Uh, those who understand uh, energy uh, will obviously prosper, and those who don't uh, will go to the wall, which is where it seems to be going with me. From, 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 from my perspective, I, I think we are, the West is in a very bad state and will find it very difficult to recover. Uh, and I, I, I trust that we can, but uh, I'm not optimistic at the moment. Um, and as you say, our governments seem determined to ignore these realities uh, and to pretend that one can actually power and maintain, that's a crucial point, and maintain uh, complex civilizations with inferior fuels such as wind and solar. And we're blind to that quality issue. So when we talk about energy blindness in that piece that, that Deborah Lieberman and I wrote for Quillette, we're thinking that they're blind to things that really matter about it. And people understand quantity because they tend to reason in terms of, have we got enough? I mean, have we got enough food, for example? Have we got enough vegetables and meat and honey or whatever? And enough is not the right question to ask about energy. It's a subsidiary question. The principal question to ask is, have you got enough of the right quality? Have you got the right quality energy? And then you say, have we got enough? And the first law of thermodynamics tells us you've always got enough. Energy is conserved. It's never lost. It's always there. But it's the quality which is declining all the time over the entire system, the universe. And locally, of course, you, you look for high quality sources uh, in order to be able to do the work that you require. Having enough is just not the problem. So people will say in a sort of blithe and rather foolish way, there's an enormous amount of energy in the wind flowing around the world. Perfectly true. There's a huge amount. There's a huge amount of energy in falling raindrops. 
uh, but it's of such high entropy, it's so disordered and chaotic, it's of no earthly use to anybody. I mean, how is it we've got to this point where such a very basic physical point should not be a criteria of great importance in government policy, but we really have. And so the President of the United States can push through with the Inflation Reduction Act as if these low-grade resources are remotely adequate to sustain you as a nation, as a defensible and capable nation. The IRA is a disaster for the US and, and indeed for all of your allies too. So reversing the IRA is a matter of very great importance for the, for the American people. And I, I can only hope that at some point people in the Democratic Party will wake up to the dangers of what they're doing and that in the Green Party, the Green movements as well, that they will understand that you cannot push through with an environmental agenda if you're going to jeopardize people's health and well-being in the way that they are actually doing. They're going to lose this argument. There will be a dramatic reversal of the environmental movement at some point uh, unless they decide to accept that there have to be high quality sources of energy in the decarbonization mix, which of course means nuclear, which they, to which they have a, an unreasonable objection. Yeah, the Green Party was just celebrating the, the wind down of, of more nuclear plants in Germany only a, about a month yeah. ago, which is right, which is fascinating. And I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a, a shift in perception toward energy policy in the West as the situation in Europe unfolds and things become more precarious in that part of the world. And even here in the United States with the overt confrontational posturing from the Biden administration with the oil and gas industry and rising gas prices, obviously they've fallen in recent months due to the fact that we are reducing the strategic petroleum reserves, but that should end at some point. There's already talks of mm. diesel shortages hitting the market at some point in the next couple of months, but agreed. I think the public perception is beginning to shift. I think it's already shifting materially, um, but that, that trend will only become exacerbated and what moves these trends is prices. People react to prices, especially in a world where wealth inequality is as vast as it is today. The increase in prices in energy, which is one of the most essential inputs into a human's day-to-day -day life, uh, is going to, to cause a reaction. And I think even if the Inflation Reduction Act was successful in transitioning us to more wind and solar, you would still have that reaction because, like you mentioned, they are less dense forms of energy. And no matter how many of these turbines or solar farms that you build, it, it, just the, the nature of these energy sources is going to lead to higher prices, which people will react to. Yes, they got their resource, uh, their resource demands are enormous, both for the construction of the equipment, but also for the operation of the system into which they are coerced. So American electricity will become much more expensive as that goes on. Uh, I, I quite agree with you about prices. I happen to think the IRA will actually start to have effects before the price impacts start to hit home. And these could be political, controversial if they are correctly understood and publicized. I mean, there is, of course, the well-known figures, the hundreds of billions uh, or increases in taxes, which will be necessary to fund the tax credits that the IRA will make available to the green sector. But also, and I think in some ways, perhaps more importantly, there are these vast capital transfers, which are encouraged by the tax credits. Now, the US is no longer quite as rich as it once was. And there is a big opportunity cost there. 
So you're talking about several trillions of capital movements over a decade. And th those figures can be calculated from analysis done by Princeton, very supportive of the IRA, by the way. But nevertheless, you can extract these numbers from that work. And you can see the scale. So it's several trillion dollars over a decade. And that implies uh, underfunding of things that the American people might prefer to see better funded, roads, schools, hospitals, and so on. And indeed, defense. I mean, you might need to defend yourselves. So this, there is a, this opportunity cost could become extremely controversial if it is correctly discussed and the blame for that cost and that reallocation is identified so that people understand that the reason why that the university program and the road program is underfunded is because you're pouring so much capital into the green sector. Yes. And getting back to the concept of, of entropy and energy, because I think, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. people are simply ignorant to this concept or so it would seem uh, if you're paying attention to the policy that's being implemented Let's dive into the topic of entropy a little bit to educate the listeners about what it is and how it pertains to different types of energy sources and what types of entropy are, are advantageous for a human society that wants to progress and flourish. Yes, it's, it's a, a thorny concept, of course, in, in physics. And, uh, and there are well-rubbed uh, well, well rubbed jokes about this, uh, very highly polished jokes uh, you know, you start off not understanding entropy and, and then a light goes on and you do understand it. And then the light goes out again and you realize that you didn't really understand it. And, and finally, uh, you realize that you you don't actually understand it, but you don't care anymore. Uh, and I, I, I think you have to keep things relatively simple. But it is, it is a very deep concept, but it can be understood in fairly simple terms. It, it's fundamentally the difference between order and disorder, improbability and, uh, and it's, it's things that are probable and things that are highly improbable. And in terms of fuels, we're looking at fuels which are highly ordered, highly improbable, very unusual states of matter. And that's what the fossil fuels are because they're derived from organic structures, so the result of organic evolution. They're very improbable molecular configurations, and they happen to be uh, strong reservoirs, therefore, of energy. So we can break those bonds and uh, release energy. And the, the, that, order, that orderliness of, of uh, energy sources is the key to it. I'm, once you've understood that, you can see, oh, yes, the wind and the sun, they're actually relatively uh, disordered sources of energy. This is close to random heat and the intermittency about which we talk so much with regard to wind, and indeed applies to, to solar too, although it's quite regular, is part of that disorder uh, it's not not a source of energy that you can call upon uh, at at will uh, to serve a particular requirement. You have to wait until the wind blows um, before you can generate electricity. Now, people will then say, but you need to uh, store the electricity and that will be the solution. But think again in terms of the entropy and the order and the disorder. So you've got a very disordered energy source. You need to correct that disorder. So you apply some order in the form of a battery. But where is that order coming from? Well, at the moment, of course, it's coming from fossil fuels because that's how we build our batteries. So we're injecting negative entropy, as it were, order to correct the disorder of the wind. And at that point, an engineer will say, well, why do we introduce the disorder in the first place? It would be much better to have a, a thoroughly orderly system. Um, so we generate our electricity from uranium and coal and gas, and then we don't need to inject 
uh, corrective measures because they are so ordered that they can develop their own support systems and networks that supply uh, consumers. So th I think the simple statistical um, sense of entropy is the one that's most useful to explain to people. It's orderliness. And, uh, and people understand the intermittency issue pretty intuitively. And I think it's, that's a pathway in for people to see why wind and solar are so dangerous, actually, uh, in energy systems. They just degrade the orderliness of existing systems. And that's all we've done in Europe. You know, we've added huge wind fleets and solar fleets. And all we've done is to degrade the orderliness of our energy supply system. It's become more chaotic, um, literally more stochastic, actually and thus much more expensive and fragile. And the exposure to natural gas in Europe, which is so controversial at the moment, has resulted in this extraordinary political blackmail from Russia. Well, natural gas is the sole thermodynamically capable fuel left in the system. That is supplying all the order uh, which, which the system requires. It's that which actually fills in the gaps and supports the wind and solar fleets. So the order, the order has to come from somewhere, and we're still relying on fossil fuels in spite of having all these wind fleets because of this fundamental difference between uh, sources of high entropy and, and sources of low entropy like fossil fuels themselves. That's a, the way you describe that like order with denser forms of energy feels like it's like a fractal, right? Because it, talking about the situation that Europe's in, particularly Germany, with their dependence on Russian natural gas. The, one can make the argument that a lot of what's going or what is going on in Ukraine may have been prevented if, if Putin didn't think he had the political chip uh, in his favor, which is, hey, I have leverage uh, because I have the energy. If Europe were to use more orderly forms of energy, like natural gas and nuclear, and really build out that capacity to support themselves, one could argue that we wouldn't have disorder at the ge geopolitical stage because um, Putin would not have that leverage over Europe that he has since they are dependent on his natural gas. He wouldn't have had the courage, perhaps, to invade Ukraine if Europe had been not so obviously weak. Uh, you know, the, the European system was already clearly deep, deeply in trouble. I mean, people blame a lot of the current problems on the invasion of Ukraine. Well, that's not wrong in the sense that it's the immediate cause. It's the proximal cause of the difficulties. But actually, things were very bad last year. You know, you could see the European energy system staggering in huge fluctuations in prices. We've had a big blackout in the UK in 2019. There are lots of indicators of increasing fragility throughout the European system, particularly in the UK, as it happens. Uh, and the Russians are very observant. They knew exactly what's going on. So this is a good moment for them to, to strike, as it were, because after all, they couldn't rely on us not waking up to the problem and fixing it. So this he, it was a calculated risk. He thought this was perhaps a good moment to, to try it. Uh, as it happens, it seems not to have worked out very well for him. Uh, his own armed services have not performed uh, well at all. But, and the Europeans have, have tried hard to support the Ukrainians, uh, although perhaps not as vigorously as they would have been able to do had they been actually in much better shape. Uh, yes, I, I, I quite agree. Uh, I, I think if uh, Europe had been stronger energetically, it's quite conceivable that uh, Mr. Putin would not have taken the gamble that he has. Yeah. And I really want to dig into this point that energy abundance and availability to people globally is important for peace at the end. Because I'm, I, I mean, I, I 
agree with you. I do not like academic economists, but I but I am a very fond believer in free market economics to solve problems and to bring Indeed. peace to the world. Where if we can actually, uh, a lot of the strife caused in the world is driven by the fact that we we really don't live in in free market economies. We have centrally planned monetary systems. We have centrally planned energy policy. Centrally planned. Um, uh, food policy and all these things have led led to these negative externalities that it, that inherently cause friction in the physical world as um, as the effects of these centrally planned policies begin to to peak up in in meat space and so the going back to the fact that the U.S. and Europe has been the energy co- consumption in these areas has been decreasing since two thousand seven correct in Early 2000, 2003, 4, 5, 6, depends on which country you look at. But around about, I say 2005 is a good average figure. Mm-hmm. And in the West, I mean, the, the amount of energy being consumed has fallen materially between 15 and 20% across yep, the different the, areas. Right. So in the UK, uh, final energy consumption, um, total primary energy consumption, sorry, has fallen by about 30%. Huh. Uh, which is huge. Uh, and we're now back to levels of consumption last seen in the 1950s, uh, which is astonishing given the rise in population that we've seen over that period. And our final consumption of electricity has fallen by about 22% since that period. And we're back to levels last seen in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, I think that electricity figure, although it seems slightly less dramatic, is actually much more significant because electricity is such a low entropy form of energy. It's a wonderful energy carrier. And it's the carrier which ought to be growing in a sophisticated and increasingly sophisticated and progressively more hospitable society for human beings. You should be using more and more electricity, not less and less. So it's a a serious indicator of collapsing civilizational capability. We're just not as able to serve our needs as well as we were uh, quite recently, actually. So, yeah, falling electricity consumption, I think, is the key indicator. But the total primary energy consumption figures tell their own story, too, and are very dramatic. Yeah. And, I mean, and this is one of my favorite charts. I'm, not, I'm sure you're aware of it, but the Henry Adams curve, which goes back yeah. and tries to highlight energy consumption per capita. And there's just, like, an obvious plateau that starts in the 70s. Um, and similarly with electricity consumption uh, in the West in the early 2000s. That's happening as well. All of the environmentalists and the elite cognoscenti in the uh, political realm would say this is a success. We're losing less energy, but we have arguably more wealth, quote unquote, and people are uh, speaking to each other uh, via video stream across the oceans. Like things are okay. Things are fine. This is good. We're becoming more efficient. But that's another thing you highlight uh, in your article in Quillette is that the more efficient we become with energy allows us to use more. You'll find that we'll use more because if you're more efficient in one space, that gives you more uh, resources to allocate somewhere else where you have other needs. Energy is like cash. It's never left on the table. Uh, this is a well-known point. This was brought forward by uh, the chemist Justus von Liebig and uh, the Englishman W.S. Jevons in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a theory. This is an empirical observation based on human history. But when you improve the efficiency of energy consumption processes, what you actually do 
is to lay the groundwork for increasing total energy consumption. And the reason for this is the fundamental reason for this is that there is no limit to the improvements we will make in our environment to serve our own needs. We're never going to say, for example, that child mortality is low enough. We're always going to want to improve these things. Why, why shouldn't we? You know, there's no reason why people shouldn't wish to keep on improving child mortality you know, rates, improving the safety of their lives and the comfort of their lives. They never will say enough is enough. So energy consumption will always rise uh, in a healthy economy. And therefore, when we look at falling energy consumption in the West, we know that it can't be energy efficiency. Energy efficiency may be in, you know, buffering that falling consumption, but it won't be causing the falling consumption. So as energy becomes much more expensive, yes, of course, people are desperately trying to improve efficiency processes. So that's, in effect, that's the system trying to return to trend, trying to return to growth. So they're protecting themselves against increasingly costly energy by improving the efficiency of their processes. Um, but unfortunately, costs of energy keep on rising and therefore people can't afford to actually use the energy. Now, there are things we would like to do, but we just can't do. And one of those things, and I think this is where falling consumption is critically dangerous for us, it's not simply serving contemporary needs, but it's repairing and maintaining the sophistication which we have accumulated over several millennia of civilization in the West. You know, you, I think you can observe this in decaying infrastructure in the Western states. Um, I think, actually, too, on my recent visit to the US, I can see it with you too. Uh, I think it's it's quite clearly evident that uh, you know the infrastructure is slipping in the US. Certainly is in Europe, um, and we should be much more concerned about this than, than we are. We're asleep, really. Yeah, it's. I mean, I would agree. The infrastructure decay here in the US is very visible and palpable. I mean, there was. It's weird because you have all these weird, again, centralizing forces. One being government contracts driven by the ability to print money. So I lived in Chicago for six years, and it's a pretty well-known fact that in Chicago, while we're on the concept of infrastructure and roads, this is one of my favorite stories to tell, is the city, obviously it's, it, the winters are pretty harsh in Chicago. There's a lot of snow, a lot of sleet, a lot of ice, uh, and so the, the roads are continuously salted. Um, and due to the fact that the city essentially has a jobs program where they want construction jobs year in and year out. They use a, a medium grade gravel to repave the roads every spring. And so uh, to me, this always highlighted, it's like a negative externality of these government contracts funded by easy money that just led to poor outcomes. And it seems like on the energy side of things, particularly with the subsidization of wind and solar, we're seeing something similar where uh, it's not the yeah. roads that need to be repaved every year, but it's uh, the service to solar panels, wind turbines, and underinvestment and more reliable, the, the higher grade gravel, if you will, to use an analogy in oil and gas and nuclear. Yeah, so the, the problems here in Europe are largely due to starvation of funds going into the uh, conventional energy sector over the last decades, underinvestment due to overinvestment in renewables. Uh, that's quite clear. Um, the refreshment cycle for renewables to which you allude is, is very real concern, actually. The lifetime of these equipment, these equipment is quite short. Uh, sort of reverting to this point about the order and disorder of the fuels. I mean, I said the the 
disorderly nature of the wind and sun had to be corrected somehow. Well, one of the corrections takes place, of course, in the wind turbines and the solar panels themselves. They're very complex objects, actually, in some ways. And they're correcting it. But of course, that means the wear and tear on them is quite considerable. I mean, effectively, they're being consumed in the correction process. So their economic lifetime is quite short. And the subsidy programs are usually grounded on the false expectation that costs will fall sufficiently uh, to offset uh, the extremely uh, poor quality of the fuel, and also on the assumption that the equipment will last, say, for 25 or 30 years economically. It might last that long in physical terms, but it will be so poor by the end of that period that it won't be worth operating. So its economic lifetime is much shorter. So you're looking at increasing operations and maintenance costs for wind turbines and solar farm panel sites, which eventually exceed the income, and at which point it becomes uh, economic to repower them. We think in Europe that the economic lifetime for wind is much, much less than the 25 to 30 years quoted by the industry. It's somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 years, actually, for wind. And for solar, perhaps a little bit better, but not quite clear. But then the performance of solar panels in Northern Europe is, as you can guess, absolutely <laughs> pit. <laughs> Why would you do it? I mean, the load factor in Germany is under 10%. In the UK, it's slightly above 10%. Uh, you know, these, these are malinvestments, uh, obvious malinvestments. No one should have built this stuff. It's like as, as if they were to build solar farms in, in Chicago, where yeah. my freshman year you? in college, the sun didn't pierce the sun for 90 straight days. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you do it to show off. You know, these are classic Veblen goods. Uh, you do something so obviously stupid to show just how rich you actually are. You know, we're we're so rich we can afford to build solar panels in Chicago. You know, that's uh, um, well. This is a, honing in on the malinvestment. Another part of the malinvestment with wind and solar, particularly, is land use, which is a topic that doesn't get enough in, attention in the overarching public debate about the, the green transition is the amount of land that these resources take up. They're extremely inefficient if you measure them simply on land use necessary to produce a megawatt hour. Yes, and you might say that in the US that matters less than it does in the UK. Um, yeah, Great Britain is a land area roughly the size of Minnesota. Uh, with 65 million people rather than 6 million people in it. So it's a very densely populated area. Uh, but it really matters to us. Uh, it's a very, very important consideration for us. So it, this is effectively a land use conflict here in the UK. There's a lot of public resistance to renewable energy developments of all kinds. Uh, when wind, onshore wind was very active in the 2000s, there were hundreds of resistance groups all over Britain fighting these things, and pretty effectively, actually. And at the moment, there's a big boom in solar. And solar is causing real concern, and not just amongst those directly affected by it, but those who are concerned about food production. So agronomists, and agronomists. We're, we're looking at situations where we have genuinely proposals for uh, solar farms that cover two and a half to 3,000 acres of British farmland, individual sites. And we think there are something like 100,000 acres currently under threat from solar farms. Well, British farmland is pretty good overall, and it's already an energy collector. It's collecting solar energy and turning it into a rather valuable form, food, which is humanly digestible. 
what's, what kind of uh, government would encourage the production of second-rate electrons when you can create first-rate food from your land? This is a very inefficient use of a national resource. So I don't think that will last. I think you know, the breaks will go on at some point, but we will have lost quite a lot of farmland. So yes, land conflict is very real in a small country like the UK. I don't think it's irrelevant in the US either. I've thought about this a bit and, well, you know, some of my friends are quite relaxed about it. The US is a very big place. But then again, the truth is that the renewable development won't be randomly located in the US. It's going to tend to be closer to centers of demand, if it possibly can be, and particularly close to substations and close to grid lines. And that means that certain areas will become uh, focuses of attention. Those could be areas that are very valuable for other purposes, whether that happens to be farming or residential requirements or other things, or perhaps just preservation on the grounds of environmental quality. So I, th I don't think you'll be immune from land use conflict in relation to renewables, uh, simply on the grounds that it won't, won't be randomly distributed over the country. But where there are resources, they will tend to conflict with other uses that the American people would wish. Yes. And of course, the scale on which uh, the White House is projecting renewable energy is absolutely gigantic. Um, so it's uh, it's unlikely to be uh, invisible uh, to Americans. It's going to become very visible if it indeed goes as far as that. I can see the brakes having to go on necessarily because you simply can't afford it quite quickly, actually. One of my favorite land use conflicts here in the United States is the people up in Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, that area of the country uh, who often find themselves in the camp of championing the green energy transition, but they don't want it in their backyard when the wind turbines are set to go off off the coast of, of their island towns. They, they throw a fit. I, uh, who, who would blame them? I, it's quite, one quite understands. It's a beautiful place. Why would you want to do that to it? Yeah. And... So is this energy, like, is it even, would it even be possible to transition to the green energy economy set forth in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a very Orwellian thing to name and yeah, act I, that is going to increase inflation? Yes, I, I get asked this uh, question on platforms. I, you know, people say, I'm, you know, you're saying, John, that we can't have a green economy. And my answer is always the same. I say, no, no. You can have the green economy, but you won't like it when you've got it. You won't like it at all. It's, it's going to be deeply unpleasant. What effectively you're going to do is to enlarge the energy sector in relation to all other parts of the economy. There'll be much less le energy left over to do the things you actually want to do. The energy sector will be the con major consumer of its own output, as it was in the past. And we know what the structure will be like because we know what organic economies were, were like, that they were dominated by the energy production sector, which then was the land. So in the pre-coal era in Europe, particularly in Britain, it's a good example, uh, the land owned uh, most of the productive energy sector, almost all of it, and it employed nearly everybody. 75% of the British workforce, even in the 18th century, worked for landowners. Hence the enormous socio-political power of the gentry and aristocracy. Hence their enduring romance. Hence, you know, the romance of Downton Abbey. The socio-political power of the aristocracy pre-coal is absolutely gigantic because they own the energy sector and they employ nearly everybody. There's hardly any non-energy economy 
in the organic system. And that's what the, the future green economy will be like. We're all going to be working for the wind and solar industries, and there'll be hardly any other economic activities. In other words, we'll be poor. We'll be grinding poor because the energy sector will be consuming nearly all the available energy in order to try, probably fecklessly and hopelessly, to repair and reproduce itself. So, it, yes, you can have a green economy, but uh, you'll want to go back to fossil fuels pretty quickly. Yes, you'll be working for all the wind and solar farms, which will be owned by the state because they'll be wholly subsidized by, by the money printer. Which sounds like a condition for revolution to me. Yes, yes. And so this could bring this back to the public debate around this, because if we're going to give the governments of the West any credit, it is that they've successfully psychologically manipulated a lot of people to believe that this transition is not only worthwhile, but essential to human flourishing mm. in the digital or in the digital age as we continue transitioning into yeah. the 21st century. And I think a lot of the success that the government and the environmentalist groups have had is conflating the idea of increased energy consumption, particularly via fossil fuels and nuclear energy with an increase in pollution. Are these two ideas, they can be mutually exclusive, can they not? Yes, yeah, so it, it's rather like, uh, it's some kind of eating disorder, isn't it? I mean, it's like a sort of tragic conviction that food is actually poisoning you. Well. <laughs> It, it, it may be that you're eating unhealthily and you're eating too, you know, and perhaps you should change your diet, but you, you do need to eat. Uh, and and uh, yes, we've been convinced somehow that energy is something we can do without, but we really can't. But this goes back to the point about misconceptions of energy. And, and these are very widespread, even amongst highly educated people, even I, I'm sad to say amongst engineers, uh, you'll find people who don't really understand the concept of energy. Um, energy is not a thing. You know, it's not a substance. It's a mathematical concept. It's extremely abstract. It's just a mathematical representation of the potential of causing change. And it's possessed by all inputs in an economy. So oil and gas are not energy. They're substances. They happen to have very advantageous energy characteristics, a lot of available energy in those, those substances. But energy itself is not a substance. Uh, so you... You know, you, you can substitute for particular sources, oil, gas, whatever, but you can never substitute for energy. So we, we common, you know, commonplace is to say that modern society is extremely energy dependent. All societies have always been energy dependent. Every organism is energy dependent. It's always maximal. It's always one. You're never less or more than one on energy because you cannot make any changes and maintain your own structure your body structure as an organism, your society structure, your social organism, such as the economic organism. Uh, so energy dependency is always one. It's never less, never more. Uh, so we're not somehow uh, aberrant and sinful uh, in this respect. There's nothing new about the kind of our energy dependency. Uh, the, um, the, 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 the early cities of Mesopotamia were the same. Um, you know, hunter-gatherers are the same. They're just as dependent on energy as we are. Uh, we we consume a lot of it because we have a very sophisticated and comfortable societies. We don't have to uh, worry about many things that were extremely dangerous to our ancestors. No, but if we don't change the tide soon, we could be thrust back into. We might. Um, yeah, it's quite. Uh, it's in, indeed. You, I, I, one does worry about that. I am, as I say, you you climb slowly in civilizational terms, but you get the energy supply wrong, you fall pretty fast. 
Steps up, elevator down. Quite like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I really want to drive this point home to the audience. How quickly, because there's, there's two types of loops, causal loops. Uh, one in the positive direction and one in a negative direction. And the one in the negative direction could be a doom loop. And how yes. dire do you think the situation is? How close are we to getting sucked into a doom loop that we may not be able to get out of? I I really don't know. And I, I don't understand I, the relationship between uh, the accumulated physical capital of our societies and our energy consumption well enough to be able to say uh, at what point it becomes irrecoverable, where your, your, your accumulated capital is decaying so fast that you, you cannot arrest further decay, that you cannot increase the energy consumption to arrest the decay because your, your accumulated capital is falling so fast. But it could be quite abrupt. And I, I, this was brought home to me actually when I was in, uh, in Denver uh, recently, and I was learning about uh, small-scale oil and gas production in those areas and around Denver and particularly in the San Juan Basin. And I started reading uh, articles about uh, the geology of these areas. And once you start to go into an, uh, an energy system like that in detail, you begin to appreciate how intellectually sophisticated it is. You know, this is not crude business. And you, you, know, you have this impression it's just about drilling holes in the ground and getting stuff out. It's not like this at all. There's this enormous literature behind these industries about they know so much about the geological structure of these areas that they can find oil and gas so it's intellectually very sophisticated there are thousands of papers on you know in the geology of even quite small areas now that kind of intellectual sophistication is quite easily lost once you've lost that you you just can't you just don't know where to look for the oil and gas in these areas so once that's that sort of social reproduction of knowledge is interrupted you're back to square one. You know, you, you've got to recreate all that and learn again. And that, that sort of point, I think, is genuinely very concerning. I, if we get to the point where our intellectual capacities, are, uh, our inherited knowledges are so damaged that we can't understand the literature around us in relation to energy sources, yes, um, we might go into freefall. I don't think we're close to it right now. I do think it, there is time. There is time to pull this around. I, I'm, I don't want to be... Uh, I'm concerned, but I'm I'm not yet uh, fatalistic about it. Uh, I think, you know, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be talking to you about it uh, honestly if I, if I didn't think there was some chance of persuading people and and turning this around before uh, it's too late. But I do think we need to get a move on. You know, I don't think it's a idea to to leave much longer. No, I mean particularly here in the United States, we really need to where you have the current administration. And even behind that administration, a, a large environmentalist movement really beating the drum, hey, we're going to phase out fossil fuels in the next 20 years. And going back to that point about losing that knowledge, how does that happen? Well, you completely disincentivize individuals from going to seek it out in the first place because they don't think there's going to be an economic benefit to to harnessing that knowledge in the future. Yes. And uh, we know pretty much what this is like in relation to nuclear in the UK. I'm, you know, we're one of the first countries in the, the world to develop nuclear energy. And we had at one point uh, a very strong tradition in nuclear engineering. And I, I remember my last years in Cambridge uh, as a minor variety of fellow in my own college, all the nuclear engineers were in their 70s and 80s. 
there were no young nuclear engineers. And that is pretty much the case today. You know, we've gone from being a nuclear leader with uh, a, a strong tradition uh, in nuclear engineering where it was being passed down from generation to generation to being one where we're now unable to build our own nu nuclear power stations and we're at you know, we're customers of the French state and and the Chinese state. Uh, and well, that's clearly a disaster in uh, societal terms for the UK and it's clearly a retrograde step. Uh, it's a very serious loss of intellectual sophistication. And and similarly, uh, yes, you'll, you'll see the same thing in the US if, if you persist along this agenda, which, you know, pray God you don't. No. And, and then you have economic physical constraints too. I have, I have good friends who actually work in the oil and gas industry and are in control of running drilling schedules. And they're telling me that they can't get the steel for the casing to actually drill the well. So as you have President Biden out there screaming at the oil and gas industry to go drill more wells they're standing there like hey every every rig crew in the country is literally working 24 7 uh if we want to like it, even if we wanted to drill more we can't because we don't have enough steel casing because of the supply chain mess ups that the economic lockdowns created and there's there's so many very again going back to the fact that these are complex systems that central planners have completely corrupted uh, particularly mm. in the last five years with the the lockdowns and the mess up of the supply chains that don't allow you to f fix things if you wanted to in a timely manner uh it's uh i'm rambling right now but i'm just getting worked up thinking about how we've messed up this energy policy but i, I agree with you we should be going toward denser forms of energy nuclear specifically and i, I guess that's a good sort of transition to talk about what are the misconceptions about nuclear energy? Why has it been so demonized? And what do you think we need to communicate to the market uh, to, to get people more comfortable with this denser form of energy moving forward? Well, since people are concerned about climate change, uh, I think it's the rational approach is to say, all right, if you're that concerned about climate change, then you need a serious uh, answer to it. And renewables are physically inadequate. They're simply not going to be able to produce the low carbon energy that you want to reduce emissions. So that if you persist down the renewables track, you will see an abrupt return to relatively inefficient fossil fuel consumption simply to maintain standards of living and to prevent the kind of societal collapse we've just been talking about. If you really want to see a long term and truly sustainable, a dread word, but sustainable uh, low carbon economy, then it'll have to be nuclear. So this is you know, nuclear is the way to produce a, a long term low carbon economy. Some Greens already take this view. I mean, it's not just us. Uh, there are some out there, but most do not yet uh, accept or, or they, because they believe that renewables can actually do the job. So they hate nuclear more than they love the planet on the whole. Why do they hate nuclear? It's a mysterious subject. I mean, clearly the weapons program didn't help. Um, it's uh, it's mysterious, and uh, it's a very superior kind of energy. So it's rather difficult to understand. It's not simple and obvious. And I suppose there's some residual um, dislike going back into the 1930s. Remember, the, the Germans rejected nuclear on the ground that it was you know, Jewish physics. Uh, Thank goodness, because they would have achieved a bomb quite early if they, they'd uh, pursued it. So we were fortunate in one respect. 
But I think that um, the hostility to nuclear goes very deep in Europe and maybe in, in the US as well, this way that it's perceived as somehow it's earthy rather than you know, ethereal. So the renewables have sky and sun kind of rhetoric to them. I mean, the, the wind turbine is a, a spin doctor's dream. You know, it suggests a flower and a crucifix embodying rebirth and sacrifice image. You know, it's, a, it's an absolute gift. Um, and it's completely useless as an energy producer, which is unfortunate. Um, so, yes, I think it's the, it's the earth-sky uh, rhetoric is very persuasive to many people. They'd rather look up to the sky rather than accepting that actually support our lives. We, we have to go down into the earth. Well, that was another thing you touched on in your piece, which is, I think, very powerful, is that no other species or animal has ever used wind particularly as their energy source. I find this an extremely compelling argument. I, I, I tried this on uh, biologically trained friends, and a lot, I think a light goes on. I mean, it, you know, it is literally the case that there are no organisms, none, that derive their fundamental metabolic energy from wind. I mean, it, the disorder, the, the entropy, is too high. It's useless. I mean, if, if it were possible for organisms to, to occupy that niche, as it were, they would. You know, human life, you know, life is very, very, uh, you know, investigative. It will find viable niches, and no organism has been able to use that niche. It's just too poor quality. The sun, yes, there are um, organisms that derive their fundamental metabolic energy from sun, but they are simple plants and, by and large, stationary, uh, like the one just over your shoulder there. And they don't do much moving around. And they're, they're stable and very simple creatures over long periods of time. Complex creatures eat those ones and of course, collect and concentrate that energy. But there are many fewer of those, so you get the, the pyramid structure of, of life. Yes, I think it's extremely persuasive uh, and explains why we're so foolish to think that we could uh, even contemplate using wind. Yeah, the only argument I can think of is maybe wind helps birds particularly conserve energy if they're using it as yeah. a tailwind. Right. I, I, I say fundamental metabolic energy. So they can use it as an energy-conserving Trick. And of course, plants use it to disperse uh, their, their genetic material through seeds and, and so on. Um, but it, it's not actually uh, providing the complex structure of their physical bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, is, is, is very, very interesting indeed. Uh, it's, it's just a useless form. I agree. Yeah. That's it's very compelling. Because then you can sort of ridicule humans, like, hey, why are we using this as an energy source when no other dumb animal is using it? Because, as I say, it's a Veblen good. It's a way of showing off. Uh, you know, it's demonstrating wealth. I mean, very rich people uh, can afford to do daft things. They, uh, they like to have wind-powered yachts, for example. And uh, Well, now I'm thinking biblical, the hubris, uh, when it yeah. gets to a heightened level, will sometimes lead to a downfall. Are we too hubristic as a society right now? It's, it, it's curious to wonder whether the interest in renewables rose because we were unable to increase our consumption, that we began to run into difficulties uh, with fossil fuels. That, that might be true in, in Europe. We don't have uh, extensive resources there. Britain had some, and Norway has quite a lot. Um, I think possibly not. I suspect that it's post-Cold War rhetoric that really accounts for this. Mm -hmm. I think... Could have maintained exponential growth uh, 
quite satisfactorily with fossil fuels and moved straightforwardly into nuclear, actually accumulated enough societal sophistication from fossil fuel consumption to make a smooth transition into nuclear. And and thus, and that w- would have resulted in increasingly sophisticated and stable societies. But the, the Cold War rhetoric uh, was important uh, in uh, discrediting nuclear. And one shouldn't underestimate uh, propaganda efforts from from Russia. Uh, you know, the Russian propaganda on this was very effective. Um, they destabilized the nuclear industries through the Green Movement uh, in, in the uh, 70s quite deliberately, and uh, one can see exactly why they would want to do that. And I think that reverberates on today. Yeah, and another lesser-known propaganda campaign was here in the United States, the natural gas industry had uh, negative campaigns against nuclear because they didn't want it to take their market share. Yes, I, I think this, this conflict between high-grade fuels is very unfortunate and short-sighted, and uh, I n- never miss an opportunity on a platform to try to uh, bring them round to each other. I'm, n- nuclear has no future without fossil fuels. You know, in order to be able to adopt nuclear energy, you need to be very sophisticated. This is a difficult fuel to use. It's very high quality, but it's difficult. So you need to be very sophisticated and clever to do it. To get sophisticated and clever and stay sophisticated and clever, you need fossil fuels. And similarly, uh, the fossil fuel industry should recognize that uh, they are necessary to the nuclear future. And the nuclear future is quite a way off, actually. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to take a while uh, to move towards very sophisticated and high-grade high nuclear usages. And this is a point worth making. I mean, you asked about the nuclear industry in, in general earlier, and uh, I'm, I'm more of an historian than I am an engineer. But one of the lessons of history is that technological development is quite slow, actually. And nuclear is still a very new thing. I know the industry likes to say that it's mature, but, you know, historically speaking, that's not really true. This is actually very early days for them yet. Their best days are to come, uh, I trust. You think about the steam engine. The first steam engines were built in Europe in the late 1690s, the late 17th century. They weren't really good until the late 19th century, by which time there'd been enough societal sophistication, particularly in metallurgy, to allow them to develop very high pressures in in the boilers so that they could produce very high thermal efficiencies. That's just before the steam engine became obsolescent, of course, uh, around the world. So that's a couple of hundred years. It takes time. Um, So I'd be very patient about nuclear, and I think the nuclear industry should be more modest about this and recognize that they have a a symbiotic relationship with fossil fuels uh, and and there should be less uh, self-harming, mutually self-harming rhetoric from these two industries and recognize that they, they work together for human benefit. Oh. oh, there you go. You froze for a minute. I agree. They should they should be working together, especially considering the environment right now. They're they're both going to get kicked out of the energy mix um, by yes. this this zealot, this movement of zealots pushing us towards wind and solar specifically. Right, and they uh, they believe that correctly that uh, their fuels will be uh, used by uh, human beings again. That they think they have a bright future. That eventually sanity will dawn. That uh, people will come back to fossil fuels and to nuclear. I agree. That's perfectly true. I think they underestimate the danger that it may not be their companies that actually extract and deliver those fuels. And indeed, 
within the US that it may not be Americans that actually consume these fuels. So you may stop using your oil and gas and your coal, but other countries, for example, those in Asia, may be quite happy to reuse you as a resource extraction base. Uh, and um, you may not like that very much. So they'll prosper. You, you'll become an economic backwater that sells first-rate fuels to earn your living. Uh, not an attractive prospect for you, I think. No, no, not at all. Especially as I've got young children as well, thinking about the world that they're growing up in. It's, it's, the, that prospect uh, seems untenable to me as a father. And that's why I'm happy to be speaking with you today to get this message out there because I do think it's extremely important. And maybe the last thing we can touch on, again, we're talking, we mentioned earlier, a lot of people in the West will say, hey, you two are live streaming, video streaming over the internet. Um, things are fine. Yes, we're losing using less energy, less electricity, but look, you're doing things that 10 years ago would have been impossible. And you would highlight that this is happening in spite of the reduction of energy and electricity usage in the West. It is being wholly subsidized by increased usage in parts of the world like Asia and India. Exactly. And, 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 and you know, Deborah Lieber and I say that explicitly in the Quillette piece, you know, we're living on Asian energy consumption at the moment. I mean, in fact, we're borrowing money to buy uh, Asian goods. It's, it's an anesthetic. You know, we have a, a, a portal line of uh, anesthetic wealth flowing in from Asia, which is hiding uh, our own economic decline for us. But that's not a recipe for long-term prosperity. You know, we've lost a lot of productive capacity in the West. Asia has built it up. Now, you, you only have to go and look at the energy consumption figures in by sector to see how dramatic this, this is. I, you look at industrial energy consumption in the United States, for example, and compare it with that of China. You know, only a few years ago, the US was consuming more energy in the industry, not much more, but more. Now China is consuming very much more energy in its industry than the United States, and American industrial energy consumption is falling. Most importantly, its industrial electricity consumption is falling even faster than overall. So you're de-electrifying, which again is a very you know, serious concern. It suggests that you're moving towards simpler processes. So you're living on Asian production, and that makes you vulnerable. Uh, vulnerable in several respects. I mean, firstly, that at some point Asia may choose not to transfer wealth to you in this way. Uh, you're, they may not wish to. Um, they may have nothing uh, that they require from you and they just interrupt uh, that flow. Um, or that in return for that, they may want greater control over your political administration if this, uh, you know, this, this line of uh, anesthetic is to be maintained. Um, they may um, demand a greater intervention in your conduct and behavior. would not be irrational at all for them to do that. But I think most the short-term concern is that the productive capacities in Asia are so great that they can be transferred to other purposes should they wish to. So should there happen to be, let's hope there never is, uh, a shooting war between the US and China, China has an enormous productive capacity which can quickly be repurposed um, towards materiel rather than iPhones for your personal concern. Yes. Uh, they can put their foot to the floor. I'm not sure you could in the US anymore. No. It's a shame. Again, going back to hubris, I think this empire, empire has gotten fat, happy, complacent. Uh, 
and dumb. It just seems objectively stupid and ignorant what administrator, I mean, it's, it's been happening for decades now, or at least two decades, this, this movement towards these less reliable energy sources here in the U.S. And that it, it, I do worry that it would take a pulling of, of resources from China or something like that from the U.S. to force the issue at home where people wake up and say, oh, this is really yep. important. Yes, uh, but it, it really isn't too late. Uh, you, you know, I'm, Churchill famously said that um, you know, the U.S. is a remarkable place. Um, it always does does the right thing eventually, having tried every other possible option. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it, 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 you can do this, um, but it, it will require quite a lot of public campaigning. And I think it, it's it's not simply the, the people. I mean, I think actually probably the American people understand this pretty well already. The problem is in your intelligentsia. It's through your university classes and the upper parts of your federal administration and even perhaps the individual state administrations, you know, the, your bureaucracy, your civil service, and also, I think, sadly, your military. I mean, we have the same problem uh, in the UK. You know, there's serious talk about low-carbon war as if this were <laughs> actually active. Uh, you know, the point is to win um, and defend your country. Uh, now, there may well be low-carbon ways of, uh, of producing uh, highly effective defense services, but we don't know of them yet. Uh, you know, nuclear-powered uh, submarines and ships, but not nuclear-powered planes or, indeed, battlefield uh, equipment such as tanks. This is a way off, actually. Uh, so the, the, the re-education is not simply with the American people at the, you know, the, the blue-collar level. I think those people are pretty sensible. They understand these things intuitively rather well, actually. Uh, and I think you know, the engineer on the street, as it were, also understands it. Their voice is not heard. But the bureaucracy and the political classes... Uh, and as I say, I think actually the um, the military, you know, these are targets for our campaigning. We should try to explain these. They're not stupid people, but they are definitely wrong about this. I don't think they're stupid either. Are they nefarious, though? I don't know. I think we have to assume that uh, in the intentions are good uh, for the purposes of discussion. Um, I'm sure thinkers in there, <laughs> I dare say. You know, <laughs> Qui bono? Who benefits is always a good question when you see something particularly foolish in politics. And doubtless there are people who understand these things very well and are expecting to make a lot of money out of the adoption of renewable energy. And when that collapses, they will reinvest their winnings from the renewable energy phase in the corrective measures needed to restore wealth in the fossil fuel and the nuclear industry. So there'll be a huge wealth transfer, which will be permanent. And, um, <sighs> It's also tiresome. Why can't we just can't we just be sensible and recognize common sense logic, which is we should be using denser and denser forms, not reverting to fifteenth century windmills and solar farms. Not that they were around in the fifteenth yeah, century, but the decision was taken. Uh, we're now in a very difficult position. Uh, you know, correct. So if it had been stopped in the early two thousands, it would have been fine. Uh, yeah. But we're now so committed. Um, but the U.S. is not in such a dire position as Europe. I mean, you really haven't yet started. I know that you've got s stalling energy consumption, but mm -hmm. your energy consumption is not yet falling sharply as it is in, in Europe. No, I mean, so, your situation is bad, but not yet critical as ours is. No, we should be looking to Europe and saying, hey, let's not, let's not Absolutely. repeat yeah. this. I mean, you just yes. had BASF leave Germany after being yeah. there for over a century, correct? 
Yes, and uh, you know, I, European car manufacturers are now looking to manufacture electric vehicles to take advantage of electric vehicle mandates in Europe, but they're going to manufacture those EVs in China. Needless to say, I, in, so I, as I say, I don't think this will run on for, forever, um, but it could run on for a very long time. Um, there's quite a lot of wealth to erode in Europe still, and uh, and and to, to, to transfer, of course. Um, but the situation in the US is, although it's bad, um, you can turn this around. Uh, and I think if it's turned around in the US, then there's a chance for turning it around in Europe as well. Uh, you, you've been, you know, the the arsenal of democracy before, and uh, you may have to be so again. Mm-hmm. No, one thing that I'm very optimistic about here in the United States, particularly, is this trend of states asserting their autonomy from the federal government and beginning to ignore yeah. federal government guidelines in different areas of the world. Marijuana was uh, probably the first big mover uh, a decade ago, and obviously with. The COVID lockdowns, different states took different approaches to what they were going to mandate or not mandate their citizens to do. And I think uh, we will begin to see that trend insert itself into the energy policy world as well. Um, And then for the context of this podcast, for Bitcoin podcast, um, I do a lot of Bitcoin mining and I'm beginning to see that trend pop up as well, where uh, more states like Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Wyoming are really not falling prey to the rhetoric of the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who are trying to demonize the Bitcoin mining industry for its electricity usage and say, hey, it's okay. They're going to help us actually expand electricity capacity on grid and off grid, which I think could actually be a benefit to to overall energy supply here in the United States in the long run. Yes, the federal system is certainly uh, a great advantage. And uh, independent decision making on energy in the federal states would, would federated states would be immensely beneficial. I'm worried that the centralisation of energy policy through the Inflation Reduction Act will gradually erode the independence of the states uh, in relation to energy. We've seen this in in Europe. After all, we have national governments, but our renewable energy policies. Uh, when the UK is out of the EU now, so I suppose I can say their energy policies. Uh, we're still under them, however. But uh, those energy policies uh, were so dirigiste that the independent national governments actually couldn't exert their independence. So they were simply they, they were simply delegated responsibility for meeting targets in in energy. And I would be concerned that the federal government in the U.S. will follow that European model and attempt to disarm uh, the state, the individual states on energy policy. So it's something that has to be watched very carefully indeed. Well, this is why I'm I'm very bullish on Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining permanent funds, because the way the federal government would do that is say, hey, if you don't do, meet these targets, you don't get federal funding. And at the state level, at the municipal level, at the county level, wherever you may be, Bitcoin, being that it's a mechanism to monetize electricity on site, in any location on the world provides you with the opportunity to say, Hey, uh, we're going to go issue a municipal bond, raise a bunch of cash, buy a bunch of Bitcoin miners and plug it in maybe off grid at a strand of natural gas. Well, or maybe on grid, you have a utility company that has a substation worth 20 megawatts. They're only serving 10 megawatts of that electricity to market. So they'll use the, the excess 10 megawatts to 
mine Bitcoin and then they can roll those Bitcoin revenues up into a permanent fund uh, that allows them to bolster themselves against the federal government when the federal government comes and says, hey, we're not going to give you the money. The, the local government can say, hey, we actually don't need it. We've been mining Bitcoin and monetizing our, our energy on site. Uh, and and you're, you have no power here. This is the, the future I dream of as a Bitcoin miner. Well, um, good luck. I'm, 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 <laughs> yeah, further independence for the states is a very good idea. Uh, I'm centralized. We've... The, the Brexit vote, which is in jeopardy at the moment, after all that, with the removal of the trust government, but nevertheless, is, you know, the the will to self determination is very strong, and uh, you know, the people were given various explanations for the Brexit vote, um, but essentially it was that we didn't wish to be governed from uh, Brussels or Berlin. Mm -hmm. You know, people make laws for themselves, and uh, the United States is the United States. And the people living in the individual states wish to make laws for themselves. And that's an excellent um, ambition and to be lauded. So, you know, um, as I say, good luck. Thank you. Well, again, but this whole problem goes back to what we were discussing in the beginning of the discussion, which is proximity to the source of information. Like that's what really irks me about the federal government here in the United States. You have a bunch of parasites in DC trying to make decisions for people in the middle of Wyoming. And they're literally thousands of miles away from the information that, that is pertinent to the decisions that need to be made on the ground in Wyoming. And similarly yeah. with Brexit and Brussels, uh, the, the literal distance between the source of information, and the people making decisions uh, to solve problems that they believe exist there just doesn't compute from an information system perspective no, that's even assuming that they are benevolent uh, but of course their interests are likely to be different from those people so even if they have the information they're likely to use it to serve their own interests rather than the people of wyoming but as it happens they don't have the, in the information so they make bad decisions both from their own perspectives and those of <laughs> it's a disaster for everybody um yes of course i mean Distributed information processing is clearly the, the answer to this. I, if we were to undistort the energy markets uh, and simply allow people to choose uh, energy sources that serve their needs, you would see a straightforward graph. The price signals would encourage it. And you could say, well, but, uh, that doesn't address climate change, to which the answer is, okay, if you're very serious about that, uh, then the individual states should be allowed to apply carbon taxation, but only a single instrument. You know, I'm not wholly against decarbonization, but it has to be economically compelling. If it isn't so, it's simply not going to work. I mean, climate policy, and I think for the avoidance of doubt, you know, I, I state my position on climate policy uh, in practically every talk I do. I mean, it, climate policy is like an insurance policy, you know, and it has to pass the basic tests of any insurance policy. It has to provide real cover. It has to provide, you know, it has to be affordable in itself. And the premium you're paying has to be proportional to the risk, hazard times probability insofar as you understand it. And those sorts of decisions have to be left up to people on the ground. They have to make decisions about it. They have to decide, is the cover we're being offered real? You know, for us, um, it, can we actually afford it? And at the moment, these decisions are being taken by central government and the, uh, with the result that actually there is no real cover. The policies don't protect people against uh, what climate change there is, or indeed the natural disasters, which are not caused by climate change, but are just normal fluctuations in weather. And the costs are unaffordable in themselves and utterly disproportionate to 
the risk you know, hazard times probability insofar as we understand it, which is not terribly well. Um, and in fact, ordinary people on the ground understand these things much, much better than central decision makers, and they'd be much wiser and more prudent. They would discount the future much more appropriately, but they would also take sensible decisions about the future because after all they're looking after their families they're not indifferent to the future at all they're not short-run hedonic robots you know they love their children and uh, i have i have children too um i think i yeah they're quite tiresome actually but i love them very much <laughs> but um you know you 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 do think about the future and so but you think rationally about it uh which bureaucrats never do you know they are uh, they enter into this extraordinary position where they want you to not discount the future at all, because after all, being bureaucrats, they believe in perfect knowledge. Yes. Perfect knowledge does not exist. No. It's, no again, maybe the theme of this episode is the hubris of man and his inability to, to step back from the wheel and say, hey, maybe I'd, I can't control this. Uh, maybe we yeah. should let emergent complex systems take care of themselves. Yeah, I don't want to go too far down the hubris thing because I might get into the situation saying, well, we deserve the crash that's coming. And I do actually want to avoid the crash if we could possibly can. I do so, as well. Yeah, uh, both for my own sakes. I think it could come within my own lifetime and certainly for my, my children. Yes, well, hopefully conversations like this begin to wake people up because, again, Dr. Constable, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been... Great pleasure, Marty. It's been... Uh, the pleasure has been all mine. Again, I think the message that you're spreading is extremely important. Not only that, it's extremely clear and very easy to grok once you take the time to sit down, uh, read your writings, and understand the perspective that you're coming from and that you're trying to imbue on your audience. And so I hope that anybody listening to this today, share, share it with one of your friends that is saying that we need to transition to wind and solar, that fossil fuels are bad, that nuclear energy is dangerous. The, yeah, think, think again. Yeah, the prospect yeah. of a world without them is much, much scarier than, yes. than one with them. Absolutely, yes. Well, thank you again for your time. This has been a no. an immense pleasure. We're going to get this out right away. Uh, where can anybody who is curious to find out more about what you're working on, what you have written, what you what you plan to do in the future, where can they find you? I write for several organizations uh, in London. I write for the Global Warming Policy Foundation. And some of my studies there, including a large study on the European Union's energy policies, freely downloadable uh, from that site. Um, I also run a small charity publishing data on the renewable sector here in the UK. Uh, it's called Renewable Energy Foundation. As I say, it's not an industry lobby. We just happen to know a lot about renewables, uh, probably more than uh, the industry does in some respects. And that's all free information. You can find a great deal there. But of course, I've published individual articles um, here and there, for example, in Quillette and, and other places too. But um, anybody wishes to get in touch, um, they can doubtless um, find you and uh, you can pass that on to me. I'm happy to correspond with any interested party about these things. I'm coming to the US increasingly often now to, to talk, uh, and uh, I'm very open to invitations uh, to come speak. I, I regard this as immensely important, and I'm very happy to travel uh, to, to do so. Uh, this, is a, this is a matter of, of great importance for all, all of us. Agreed. And if you ever make your way to Texas, let me know. We'd love to have you sit in the chair cross. Maybe we can do this in person next time. I, I look forward to that. It'll be great fun. Awesome. Well, it is the evening where you are. Enjoy the rest of your evening. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Thank you.